0: Listener Production.
1: This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. One of the ways we do this is through live events, like the Leadership Summit we held in March 2021. There is an incredible atmosphere when you're in a room of inspiring women, especially when they're there sharing their stories and leadership experience. And in this series, I'm bringing you the highlights from the event. In this session, we'll be focusing on diversity in those occupying leadership roles. How can we see more diversity in leadership roles? I talked to two women who freely admit there is no magic solution. Between them, they have decades of experience on what's causing this disparity and some great suggestions on how to improve things. Nicola Wakefield-Evans is a non-executive director and chairman of the 30% Club. And Noreen Young is an industry professor at the University of Technology, Sydney. So let's jump into it. (laughs) Noreen, I wanna start with you and thank you both for joining. Is the argument settled around quotas versus targets? Well, clearly not, because
0: we don't have targets in place. And I was reading this morning, it's only 32% of boards. Or is there still 32% of boards, Nikki,
2: that don't have women on them? Or is it only... No, it's 32% of the ASX 200 have... uh, 32% of directors are women.
0: 32%? Okay. That's still pathetic, though,
2: and... There's a story
0: behind that. The the years when I was at Diversity Council Australia were the years when the ASX put their affirmative action programs into place, so I'm pretty familiar with all of it, as I'm pretty familiar with all of the arguments. And I'm sick of it, and I don't think it's settled. If it was settled, we'd have 51 or 52% of women. Board composition would reflect the way that society looks, and we'd have diverse people on it and i'm from culturally diverse and indigenous background myself i don't see any reflection of the society that i mix in on boards however i've also been arguing for years that we've never asked these women what they're going to do we've never really had a serious discussion about what the merit of having women on boards is and whether this trickle-down approach to workplace conditions is working. And I think we've really got to say, are we going to have that discussion with the women who we promote, who we collectively promote, because we've all been involved in this for so long. And are we going to say, if you're there, you owe it to the rest of us to promote things that make workplaces decent for all women?
1: there are many young um, women in the, in the room and they're wondering, how do I do this? Like, how do I, how do I back change in my organisation? As someone has been in this debate for a long time, what advice do you have for them? I just think you have to really back yourself and it's really hard. Most of us
0: don't um, because we don't think of it that way. I think women, most women tend to be really humble. And we find it difficult unless we come from a kind of background where we're nurtured to be confident. But I think most ordinary women do doubt ourselves, and would never. I never saw myself sitting on a stage talking to people. That just didn't enter my consciousness when I was growing up. There wouldn't have been too many people doing it, like there was. Well, there wasn't too many women doing it either, and I and I think we lacked role models. Um, you know, I was lucky very lucky I went through one of the great New South Wales public education selective girls schools. And so I did have role models of women up on stage, but I think that was very fortunate. So I think we have to be really confident and really back ourselves.
1: Nicola, quotas versus targets is a debate that corporate Australia's had for a long time. Women at senior levels have had it for a long time. What are your thoughts on how to get there?
2: It is going to take us a while to get there and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, Part of it is that we don't have the pipeline of women who've had the executive roles, who've run businesses, who've been CEOs. That's a work in progress and that's where we need to actually put the afterburners on and get progress in that because if you look at the executive side of corporate Australia, Australia, the statistics are really bad. Out of 50 CEOs appointed to the ASX 200 in the last two years, three were women. And we know that CEOs of corporates are appointed from a cohort who's either run a business, so they've got line responsibility, they've been responsible for a balance sheet, or they've been CFO. Interestingly, there's a big push, and I think this has been really good, to have more women appointed as CFOs to try and nudge that pipeline along. Um, so that's that's where we've got to start. Do we need quotas? I'm still a target person because that's the space I work in. However, I am coming around to the view that in some – and you've got to be careful when you talk about quotas. What are you talking about quotas for? Where do you need quotas? Quotas. I'm absolutely of the belief that we need quotas for politics, both at a state and federal level. We need the political parties to have quotas to get more women into politics. Absolutely a firm believer of that. And then I believe that there will be a trickle-down effect once we do that, once that happens.
1: So I'm in an organisation, I'm a young female leader at the moment. How do I advocate inside an organisation for quotas or, or a target? have the conversations.
2: And the thing I think that corporations are better at doing and will get there probably faster than our governments is that a lot of them have those structures in place, diversity programs or opportunities where people can talk and raise topics. And in all the organizations I'm involved in, any employee can ask for a certain topic to be promulgated or to have an an external speaker come and talk. You need to take responsibility, I think, put your hand up, talk to the HR department, or even talk to your management team and say, we need to have a conversation about this. We've almost as women got to start taking responsibility, not only for our own careers, but for the environment that we operate in around us.
1: Noreen, I'm going to throw that question to you because you come at it from a different perspective in a way with your history of working as an activist really in this space. What recommendations do you make for getting change through organisations? I saw quotas work in the ALP. I
0: was a young activist in the Labor Party and I was active in the Half by 2000 campaign, which led to the adoption of quotas and of the waiting rule in New South Wales, for example, that has led to where they are now and they're in a very good space. I worry about organisations because we still have this incongruous situation where we've got great things happening, but then we still have people who can't behave at work, who don't understand that they can't sexually harass someone at work or be racist or be whatever. I think we have to think of ways where we can deal, and I think the recommendations that the Human Rights Commission made Um, Kate's fantastic, Kate Jenkins. She understands the area. She worked in it for a long time as a lawyer. Um, I think that we need to take those recommendations up to stop that contradiction.
1: Nicola, I wanna talk to you about merit because there seems to be a different understanding of the word. Tell me your experience with merit and if you've got any advice for the audience.
2: So let me start with my observation that merit only ever comes up when you're talking about female appointments or diversity or gender targets. It's it's really interesting. You only ever get the discussion when you've also got the word either gender or diversity. So I think that's my first observation and I've seen that throughout my whole career. So no one ever
1: says, is that guy there on merit? No. (laughs) That is so true. No.
2: My second observation is how do you define, What what is the definition of merit? And I ask this question a lot, particularly when I get people observed to me, oh, we're a meritocracy, and this is the lawyer in me, I'll say, well, can you define what you mean by meritocracy? Can you define merit for me? Can you define how merit cascades throughout your organisation in the way that you appoint and promote people? And very interestingly, it's very difficult. Um, And I I want to give you, because it'll illustrate what we have to deal with in the work that I do as the chair of the 30% Club and a director of the AICD. I get asked a lot, I get phoned by investment bankers, we're working on an IPO, it's going to list in six weeks, we need to appoint a woman on the board. So that's the five minutes to midnight appointment. So that woman is not going to have the advantage of going through the due diligence and all the risk processes that you go through to do an IPO. So that's, that's problem number one. Problem number two though is they're always looking for a uni- what I call a unicorn director. And the unicorn director, they'll say to me, I, we need a woman and she needs to have this, 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 this capability. She's got to have experience in the sector of the company that's IPOing, financial experience. She's got to run a business. And I look at the directors that are already on the board, all male, and I ask myself, where are their capabilities? So they want all the capability they've decided they need in one person. That's the merit. Because they've determined they need to appoint a woman. They're going to appoint her on merit, but there's a higher bar of capability requirements than they've applied to the men. What are the things they want in their unicorn board member? So somebody who's had financial experience, either accounting background or worked in the financial department of a company or understands financial statements, requirement number one. Sector experience, so if it's a resources company, a woman that's worked in a resources company, thirdly, has run a business. And we know that that's where we don't have enough women at the moment who actually run businesses. And often there'll be fourth, fifth, or sixth requirements as well. Sometimes they're looking for a lawyer, but that lawyer has to have experience in this sector or been a general counsel for that type of company, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I'm just going to jump back in here quickly and say that Nicola's advice to take responsibility for the environments we work in and Noreen's point on backing yourself and having the confidence to stand up and call for change really stood out and have stayed with me. After Nicola's description of the unicorn candidate, a woman who needs to be able to do it all to have the merit to be appointed into a senior position, I decided to ask Noreen how often she gets asked whether someone's been appointed on merit. Oh,
0: all the time. But as Nikki says, it's, you're so right, and I've never thought about this before, but you, I've never heard it in relation to a man, to a, sorry, to a white, straight, able-bodied man. Never, ever, ever. It's a matter of definition, and I don't know that there is a definition of merit, but I think that because it's undefined, it's hard to quantify But I I get the unicorn candidate thing totally as well. I'm on a lot of not-for-profit boards and I've just been through one uh, with one, the process of appointing another woman in addition to me. And the boys were hilarious, right? They wanted the unicorn candidate. And they were trying to be so good. They were trying to be so woke about it all and trying to be perfect and a bit scared of me, I think, in what I might say. And when we've got a fantastic woman and she has got all of those things. But golly, did we go through a lot of women candidates to get to the unicorn
1: candidate. What about the issue of a broader concept of diversity in the world that you're working?
0: Well, people like me have been agitating for it for a long time. When I was at DCA, we introduced the concept of being able to count culture and count your cultural background. That hadn't been done in Australia before. Prior to that, I just didn't see anyone who looked like someone I grew up with and there wasn't... Greek people, there wasn't Lebanese people. There just wasn't people from background other than the Anglo private school ones around corporate tables, whether it was boards or, or employment. And in those days, there was no discussion about Indigenous people as board members. I was still having to have fights with people about Indigenous employment and the concept that Indigenous people have actually worked in this colony since the day of the invasion and we really needed to stop applying that deficit model to the employment of Indigenous people. So we've come a long way in a short time and I think the gender debate has broken the ground for a lot of other things to happen. I think we're still struggling in in the context of Indigenous people and work and breaking stereotypes and the levels of racism around Indigenous people and work out there in the community and that translating into workplaces.
1: Nicola I'd want to ask you, no I'm very I'm going to be very careful how I I choose my words here, but in the rush to put women into senior roles, is it possible that women do find themselves in roles that they're not ready for? And is that okay?
2: Yes, I think it is okay because we don't ask the same question about men. It's a, it's a question I find really difficult because again, it's a, it's a very gendered question and it's only ever asked in relation to women. It is never asked in relation to the promotion of men. And when you look around, you see lots of fabulous men and women in leadership positions, but you also see not so fabulous men and women in leadership positions. But that question is
1: never asked about men. So let me frame it slightly differently then, Um, and thank you for that answer. There tends to be in the research I've done and time I've spent working with the women in this room, often a lot of pressure on them when they get into those roles. And so they often don't have any confidence, resilience issues until they find themselves promoted into roles that are a stretch. And as you say, men get promoted into roles that are stretched all the time. So how do we navigate that bit of this puzzle or we just put more women in and it's okay? It's, I think there's a number of things
2: to unpick in that. Why are boys and men more resilient and able to cope in those types of roles? And I've spoken about what I'm just about to say publicly as well. My number one view is, starts with our, our education system because we do differentiate between the way we teach girls and the way we teach boys, firstly. Secondly, we promote um, STEM subjects a lot more to boys than we do girls, although thankfully that's now changing. But that's been a really important distinction in our girls and boys education. But the third and the most important reason, and I still get really upset when I talk about this, sport is not compulsory for girls as it is for boys. So boys get a very early start in participating in teams and in doing dangerous, potentially dangerous, risk-taking sporting activities that provide them with a lot of things. Resilience, the ability to process information, the ability to participate in a team, the ability to think at a very young age. We don't put the same requirement on our girls. And when girls start to drop out of sport around about the ages of 11, 12, 13, so any of you that are mothers of girls, keep them in sport because when... And I see this in, you know, 30-plus years of recruitment. You look at the resumes of boys versus girls, people who've graduated with very good degrees and the boys tend to have a lot of emphasis on the sports that they've played right throughout school and university. Girls might have started sport but have dropped out at some point And I think that gives the courage and the resilience that men seem to have to do jobs that they might not be qualified for, whereas it's often a step up for women.
1: That is such an interesting insight. I'm also um, keen to get from both of you before we wrap up, um, what your advice is to young women in the audience today who are in that position. They are and I'm gonna I'm gonna generalize, so I apologize, but often you are the women doing all the work in your organization. It comes down the top and somewhere it lands on your desk and you're close to burnout and you're not really sure whether you should put your hand up for the job and there's not a lot of people telling you to do it. So what advice would you have to a young woman who's tired but got plenty of ability and plenty of um Drive in terms of their next steps and their future careers? So I think the first thing is only you can take control of your career.
2: So I often see particularly women who step back waiting for opportunities and waiting for things to happen. But you have to at some point take responsibility for how your career is progressing. And even if if you're in the right or the wrong organisation, the second area, Helen, I think is really important, is to seek out people who can mentor you and sponsor you. And they are people who are doing two different types of roles in a career progression. A mentor is somebody you can talk to about issues that might be going on in your career and that's who you would talk to about this opportunities come up. I think I've got the right skills. I'm not sure... I might not have all of the skills. Do you think that it's something I should do? So you're seeking the advice of somebody who knows you and who you have a relationship with. A sponsor, on the other hand, is somebody that will have your back and will sponsor you into those roles. And both roles for women are vitally important. And then the third bit in organisations, which I find really interesting, is you should have by the time you get to even after your first year working at an organisation, a network inside it of like-minded people, and it might be your graduate cohort, or it might be that you've sought out other people who are interested in other things that you're interested in, that network you should be able to turn to, to get advice. Because the advantage that the networks that you have internally in organisations are that they are people who observe you every single day. So, they can give you quite good advice and sometimes confronting advice about your career choices or how you
1: should progress or whether you should go for this job or that job. Mentor and sponsors, great advice. And networks. And networks. Um, your advice, Noreen? The first two, absolutely.
0: I think I had really great sponsorship from men in the trade union movement in when I was a young woman and I still do things every day that were part of advice that I got then and I was very fortunate. And I I think there's quite a few men around these days who are wanting to sponsor young women into leadership positions, so I would say use your emotional intelligence, be smart enough to work out who are the people to, to nurture and who are the people to network with. I'd also say what I was saying at the at the beginning, it's not necessarily in a lot of women to be incredibly confident, work on that. Make good choices, which I talked about earlier, and back yourself, but also back other women because you get it back. I have really great women friends who I've met through work over the years and I'm still working with people on things that I've known for 20 and 25 years. And that thing about consistently backing women means that people trust you because you do the right thing by
1: women. And I think that that goes a long way. That is an excellent point to finish on. Noreen Young, Nicola Wakefoot-Evans, thank you so much for joining us today. Give them a really big round of applause. And remember, that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe. Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.